0: Good morning, everybody. <laughs> that was weak. <laughs> that was really weak. Uh, good, morning. good morning. 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 Um, I think this is supposed to be taken off, right, in order to be seen. I'm assuming. Yep, okay. I'm like, why is that up there? I'm so like, like, wait, I'm like, what type of TV do you have? I, <laughs> it's fancy. All right, I'm hoping you all can take care of that. Do you need to turn it on or anything? We're running low on staff, and I'm the new guy, so never question. Well, give me a pushing buttons. Oh, there's a power one. Hopefully that works. Yikes, anyway. Well, that's good. Everything's going according to plan. Okay, well, we might just have to wing it, cool. We we were talking about this. Oh, Troyce is like, nah, man, I'm gonna fix this. All right, real quick. Well, Troy, you're doing that. Good to see everybody this morning. Welcome to Frontline Bible Church. Hi, everybody online. My name is Pastor Will. I'm a friend of John's. I've been attending Frontline for a few months now, uh, quite a while. It's hard to say. COVID makes plans and time just stand still, so that's a little weird. But what'd you do? I hit the button too. Anyway, uh, well. He's, he's a stronger millennial than me, but uh, anyway, it's good to see everyone here. Uh, it's been great getting to know some of you. Some of you I've not gotten to know uh, quite yet, and also, please do me a favor when you talk to me. There's one of me and a lot of you. You might need to remind me your name right when you come up to me, because I'm like, I know some of them, and I don't know the rest of them, and it's, at this point, I'm too scared to ask again. You know what I'm saying? So uh, anyway, it's been really great. I uh, got together with some of the guys um, recently. Uh, we were at B-dubs for far too long. And uh, what, three and a half hours? I don't even know. It was crazy long. And we were like, we got to go. Um, then uh, it was fun. We had uh, Jason and Faith over. And then we pawned a cat off to them. We are just like, I don't want, I'm like, I don't want my cat. And I don't like the cat. Cats annoy me. And finally, my wife has seen things my way. Good cat, though, and then and Faith was just like, can I have it? I'm like, yeah, of course, and then uh, Jason's like, but I didn't say so. Long story short, they end up with a cat, so if you come to my house, I give you pets, so I have two huskies left and a hedgehog. Who wants them? Okay, all right, jokes aside. We'll move on, but anyway, um, today we are continuing our series on Genesis, so if you could go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Now, here's the other thing. There's a lot to cover today, and unfortunately, one of the parts I have to cover is more like the scientific-y talk-talk, and that's mainly because of the world we live in today. So I'm going to try to get through all my notes on time, but last time I preached, and I felt like I was running a little short. I wrapped it up too quickly, I think. So I'm going to go back to my Baptist roots, and if I have to keep you guys five to ten minutes longer, don't throw vegetables, okay? We got to talk about this. Next week's going to be shorter, so it'll balance itself out. Anyway, so today we are talking about the first apocalypse, the very first apocalypse, probably the only one you're aware of. Um, So, go back guys, you're good. So many of you are aware of the story of Noah's flood, right? The flood flooded the entire world, dude survived on a boat, all that good stuff. But It isn't really, isn't it funny how we also call it Noah's flood? We attribute the ownership to him when he is really the one who just kind of survived the whole thing. I always find that ironic. The great flood is probably more accurate. But even stranger is how this story is one that captures the minds of many people uh, when they're reading the Bible. And yet, it's also a story that uh, is not very child-friendly, right? It's not child-friendly. Meanwhile, though, what do you see in nurseries all the time? why it's like oh what is this honey oh this is when god just destroyed the entire world drowned them all killed them isn't that giraffe cute though like <laughs> let me actually we always have our professional domestic terrorists in service with us uh, my child so do we actually i never really in the nursery much do we have a noah's ark in our nursery do we know we do we i'm getting mixed signals okay either way That's what I'm talking about if there's one in there. And the fact that none of you all know that means that you guys are going, wow, we very well might, right? And it's not a child-friendly thing. We have this all over toys and nurseries. You go to Bible stores and you see, you know, the cute little animals with the beautiful little rainbow floating along. And, you know, we usually just tell kids, oh, this is when the great flood came and Noah built a boat. And they're like, oh, that's cool. You guys tend to skip the other parts of the story that are more uncomfortable for people. And this is where we kind of get into it. The the Bible's not always a family-friendly book. Actually, it really usually is not. Even the story of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is brutal. And I find it kind of funny because in our Western society, we try to make the Bible a little bit more fluffy than what it is. It's not always fluffy, and it doesn't always feel good when you're reading it. But there's reason for that. So the Bible's not always a family-friendly book, and it's not always there to give you the good feels. I know that's contrary to a lot of our culture today. But one of the biggest lies today, bear with me, is that God is all-loving and always accepting. And although this is true, but we try to get rid of his judgment and his discipline. And we try to cast that aside. Oh, he's just love and accepting. Well, yeah, parents can be very loving and accepting, too, when you're being obedient to keeping the house in line. Otherwise, your parent can be pretty intense sometimes, right? Every child in the room said, "Yup." Um, so the thing is, is my question is what is love without discipline? What is love without wrath? What is love without jealousy? I'll give you the answer, it's just hollow talk. It's meaningless. So today we're talking about the first apocalypse. What is the, what is is an apocalypse? First off, 20 bucks says you can't spell it. Because there's an O and an A and you put them in weird spots and then there's a Y, you know? The first apocalypse, well, the apocalypse is just the end of the world. We'll just put it to you simply the end of the world and if all of you guys are singing that song in your head it's the end of the world as we know okay that's what always comes into my mind but here's the thing uh, first off john did text me before this he goes praying for you buddy bring the apocalypse and i'm like whoa i'm good but uh for those of you who do not know by the way john is traveling abroad um he's visiting family then he's got a conference and then also J.D.'s got COVID, which is why his friend Kaylee was up here, which thank you for doing that. But the thing is, is really what is love without discipline, without rebuke, without jealousy, right? God, God calls us to, like, God calls us the bride of Christ. Well, if your bride cheats on you by sinning in this sense, well, that's going to make somebody jealous. If you're not jealous, there's a problem. It's not really love. So anyway, that, this idea of uh, people are like, oh God, he's this evil, jealous God, this, the atheist claim nowadays. Like, well, what is love without jealousy? Anyway, so today I want to talk about the very simple thought. Sin always results in the destruction of the world. And this might be the entire world like we see in the flood. It might be your personal world where you live. Or it might be a region of the world, right? War oftentimes results in the destruction of the world. And so no matter what, sin always results in the destruction of the world. So before we head into the bulk of the sermon, though, and I really would like to preach the moral, I do feel like I need to spend a decent amount of time just addressing basic objections about the flood, because nowadays this has come under fire, and people have wondered. So I want to take some information that scientists have said and share it along with you, and also answer some basic questions. So first off, we need to understand the scope of the flood. And I'm not sure if you guys know this, uh, but the the idea of was it worldwide or is it local is a debate. Was this a local flood? Was it really worldwide? Well, I'm of the persuasion that it was a worldwide flood and that we should believe the text in a straightforward manner unless it shows otherwise. Okay. And then also, I find it weird that if God promises never to destroy the world with flood again, that we still have floods today locally. Okay. A little weird. That wouldn't really make a lot of sense. So I'm of the persuasion it's worldwide. Also, fun fact, we have similar accounts in history. This is really fascinating when you get into it. So we have the Sumerian account of Altrahasis. We have the Babylonian account of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And they share crazy similarities, such as uh, a worldwide flood, the idea of eight survivors, a vessel and animals being boarded on it. Well, that's weird. So these share the... So, and also they share a similar name. We have Noah... Na, nos, and na. Kind of weird and cool, isn't it? Um, but at the same time, it makes people go, oh, so is the Bible not true then? Everyone's saying different things. But this does not mean that the Bible suddenly becomes untrue since it copied other religions. No, this means that there's a common truth being shared and that the earth was once covered by water. Okay? We can make that deduction. This would also could be attributed to what we would call a share shared historical memory right? Then it's like the game of telephone. The longer it goes down, the more it gets weirded. Um, But here's the thing. So we have similar accounts, but we also have differences in these accounts. And notice this. If the similarities can be remarkable, what's really amazing are the differences. For example, the ark in Gilgamesh is a cube of 197 feet. Such a vessel would overturn quickly, right? (laughs) Cubes don't float well. Um, or they do, but there'll be a lot of it'll be a rough and tumble ride for a little bit. <laughs> but and uh, we already discussed. Uh, remember when I preached the idea of the first cause, the universe needing a cause, it points to one God and all this stuff. One of the biggest differences in these accounts is polytheism, the idea of multiple gods. So one of my favorite things about it is the in like Gilgamesh and whatnot, it's gods were living under the earth and humans were just loud and noisy and kind of annoying. So they just wiped it out with a flood. And then the survivors of the flood became immortal. So you can definitely see where the differences are, big differences. And only one of them really makes sense. (laughs) Because they get weirder and wilder and wilder. And so we can honestly say, that the flood is a well-documented event and has shared memory across various cultures, over 270 different cultures. However, due to the evidence and biblical reliability, we can state with confidence that the biblical account is true. I do not have time to go into every little nook and cranny just letting you know if you've heard these before, there are reasonable objections. So now people object with the flood, uh, such as was it local or worldwide? Well, I already mentioned that. I think it's pretty obvious that it's worldwide, and we're going to see some evidence of that in a minute. Also, the question is, is, how did the animals get there? I mean, penguins, how did they get there? What the heck? Well, here's the thing. Keep in mind, the Bible says kinds. Okay? It doesn't say each and every little subspecies, which means you really don't need every single type of dog. You only need two dogs. Make sense? So you don't need all these different ones. You just need two different kinds. This means uh, the creature will be able to interbreed, and not needing every single subspecies. Also, that the landscape was probably—could you imagine—before a gigantic cataclysmic event like this, that the geography was a little bit different. Probably meant things could get there a little easier. In fact, some people have even speculated—I'm sure you've heard about it—that the earl, the, earld, the world the world—I tried to say "world" and "earth" at the same time, and it ended poorly. So the world was also only had one continent. Some people have thought because of that. And if you look at, and it's kind of cool when you look at their globe. Did you ever do that when you were a kid before anyone mentioned that? And you're like, that looks like a puzzle, and I'm pretty sure that Africa can fit there. That makes sense. That, we're not going to address that, though. You know? <laughs> it used to bug the snot on me as a kid because I'm like, I feel like that used to all be put together. So then the next question is, where did all the water go? Guys, we're not called the blue planet for nothing. We have lots of water that's frozen at the ice caps. We also have a lot of water that's deep buried in the recesses of the earth. So it's still here. It's just in different locations. So this is not just a young earth view, because I know some people are young earth, old earth, and I'll be honest, I do not care enough about that debate. Sorry, Andrew. Um, (laughs) My buddy Andrew's here, and he'll murder me. Um, (laughs) But but I really don't care about that debate. It's not an old earth, younger thing. This is just a flood thing. If you believe in a worldwide flood, there is evidence for it. So such a debate barely interests me. I have other things that occupy my time. But let's talk about fossil locations real fast, and then we'll get to the actual sermon, okay? So fossil locations, this is interesting. Many of you guys might recognize uh, that's Florida, all right? So what's interesting is despite many discoveries, fossils do fall in a general order. Sea creatures in the lower rocks, shore creatures higher, then swamp and land creatures in the uppermost layers. And the way they're put in, it's almost like a tsunami effect. Buried them, and then got a little higher, buried them. And we see them stacked on each other, almost like there was a flood in a certain way, catching certain creatures as it climbed higher. Now, what's the interesting part about this image? Well, if you look up here, i got my little laser pointer, back to the 90s, baby. All right. And if you look, you'll see that I I put a little mountainous patch here, you know, a little north of Florida. Now notice this. See these see these uh, these little round circles. These are all different types of fossils that are found. And if you notice, look at all the ones on the shore. Then they get a little higher and higher and higher. But notice where they stop. Kind of, they all kind of get stuck up on the edge of the mountain, like it was burying them. And then it gets higher and higher, and the water, it, everything's wiped out by the time it gets to the top of the mountain. Also, seashells have been found on top of mountains all around the world. How does that get there? They don't walk. Just throwing that out there. So we know that the biblical account seems, the biblical account seems accurate. And it's funny, because I actually did this, I technically had a map of the entire United States, and we could have gone through the whole thing, it's really fascinating if I explained each fossil layer, but uh, I'm not a geologist, or a biologist, or a scientist, so I feel like I'm going to mess that up if I tried, so I'm just going to give you guys the surface level, go research, have a good time, Google's amazing. All right, so, (laughs) so why why the flood? Go to Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, now we can actually get into the sermon without me having to address all the things that might be on your mind. So, After multiple generations, we just heard about Cain and Abel before uh, Easter Sunday, right? Before Easter Sunday, Cain and Abel, Cain murders Abel. And he murders him out of a fit of jealousy, almost like he looked at Abel like an idol. And what happens? Well, blood seeps into the earth and we know the fact that it's cursed, right? Cursed with violence now. The Bible makes that clear. So after multiple generations following Cain and Abel, we run into this cataclysmic event of the apocalypse. But why? Why? Because it says that there's increased corruption on the earth. And before this, if you read Genesis 6, it gets weird because we see these sons of God come in, take daughters of man. There's much debate about what that means. Don't have time for it today. But notice that the verse is used to describe the world. In verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6, it says this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I even made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is a powerful thing. By the way, I'm reading out of the ESV. So if you are using any, if that's what I'm using, in case there's distinctions there, or you're using digital and you want to pull up the ESV, it might make it easier. But we see here, what is it? Why? The wickedness of man was great. And then it says, notice this. He said that, that he regretted that he made them. Why? Because every intention of the heart was only evil continually. In other words, they never had an ounce of good. The whole knowledge of good and evil had been fully corrupted into evil. So, every single thought and action of mankind was evil. So think of the worst time in history. Imagine it in your head. Many of you guys may have gone straight to the Holocaust. It was worse than that. In fact, have you guys ever read about the ancient Assyrians? That's Nineveh, the capital that we always make fun of Jonah for not going. Do you know what the Assyrians used to do? They used to take people that they didn't like and they pike them and just line their roads with their bodies while being piked up, skin them and hang their skins over the city walls. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Um, also, if you, uh, I do not recommend doing this uh, in church at all. Uh, if you research the rape of Nain King, it has nothing on the Holocaust. And what if I said that all those things had nothing probably on what was happening here? Every intention of every man, all times, was evil. And I just see these blips in history go, that is so horrific. You ever read something in history and it makes your stomach churn and you can't get it off your mind? Think about that, but that's what all of mankind was. So then people, so God goes, you know, I got to do something. And then we go, well, how could a loving God do that? How could a loving God destroy the entire earth? How could he kill all these people and children and babies and all this stuff? The real question is for me is how can a loving God not do that? Because love requires justice. And think about it. Even, and let's, let's put on our, theo, our, our theodicy hats for a minute. Okay, yes, children were killed. Yeah, I'm not going to sit there and try to butter that up for you any other way. But what was it? Think about it. Was that not a bit of a mercy? Because those kids were growing up in that same world, and what would they become? murderers, right? murder victims, rapists or rapers, you don't know what they were going to become. So instead of letting them continue to grow in that world, God removed them from it and brought them unto himself. Is that not more merciful than letting them live in a horrific existence? And again, we forget that God's the author of life and death, not us. So no matter what, whenever someone dies, that's God removing them. (laughs) So God doesn't commit murder. That's a category error. So, everyone was suffering at the hands of everyone. No one was innocent, and it was time to hit the reset button, is what God was saying. Often people complain that God allows too much evil to take place on this earth, right? How many of you heard that one? Oh, there's all this evil. How can you believe in God? There's so much evil in this world. But then we have an instance here where the world was filled with so much evil that God does something about it, and then people want to complain about it. What do you want? And this is, a, this is the typical thing where it's like you can't have it both ways. You can't go, well, that's not the way I would do it because you're not God. Only he is, obviously. So we often forget the gravity of our sins. Remember, sin results in the destruction of the world. So we oftentimes forget about the gravity of our sin. Our sin is destructive to everyone around us. Our sin is destructive to our friends, our marriages, our children. Everyone is destroyed by it. And we have a world here that was completely corrupted by it. This story is the ultimate consequence of unchecked sin. That's what this story is. It's, there's unchecked sin, and God has to do something about it. And I know the church today likes to focus on grace, right? And that's good. The grace of God is a powerful thing. It's a good thing. But also seemed, we also seem to forget that we will stand before the judgment at the end as well, and we will give an account for every action and idle word. Because in order to have love, you must also have judgment. And let me just be honest, is judgment not a powerful motivator? Yeah. Many people were scared into heaven, right? Like, oh, man, hell, nope, no thank you. Think about it, and you go, oh, no, I don't think so. If you're saying no, then you've clearly never had children. Or you've never been a child, right? Like, when your parents go, you better do this or else... That's judgment. as a powerful motivator. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> you know? So now I want to shift this a little bit. So we, now we understand why the world had to be destroyed. But now I want you guys to understand Noah before we go for, any further in this. So let's read verses 8 through 10. 8 through 10. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What separated him from the others? Well, it was the fact that he walked with God, he was blameless. Could you be, can you imagine being called blameless? Noah was a righteous man. He walked with God. This meant he prioritized God's ways, not man's ways. And this is important to the story because everyone else in the world was sinful, evil, violent, selfish, malicious, every bad and evil thing they were filled with. And what does he do? He doesn't go with that flow. He stands in the gap and he goes, I'm going to serve God and I'll follow him instead of myself. If everyone else was evil and sinful, this means that Noah went against the culture here. He didn't become everyone he was around. He didn't chameleon. He didn't compromise. He went against the grain. And we need Christians who are willing to do the same. We have a world right now, man, to stand on a singular biblical principle is suddenly horrendous. Right? We believe in objective moral values. We believe in objective truth. And suddenly, that's all offensive now. That's bad. Are you going to compromise that, or are you going to stand as true? Because here's the thing. A sign of good character is one that is willing to stand up for what is right, even when they're standing alone. And Noah was definitely alone. I imagine he didn't have many friends, right? He'd probably be the preachy one. He'd be the boring one, because for whatever reason in the world, if we're not filled with sin and doing all these terrible things, we're suddenly boring, as if sin's the only way you can have fun. So we now see that a judgment is reached. So now we understand why the earth had to be destroyed. We understand why Noah's being spared. Now let's read the, the judgment is reached itself. So remember that these are the offsprings of Adam, right? They all would probably know the story of how their forefather fell to begin with, yet they all ignored and continued to do their do things their own way. It reminds me of Proverbs fourteen twelve, which says, "There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death." So, let's read the judgment. Genesis chapter six, verse eleven. And we're going to read. Okay, so bear with me. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, covered inside, out, and inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of, it, of the ark will be 30, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark, finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark on, in its side. Make it with lower and second and third decks, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven." Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort in the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and animals according to their kinds, and every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive." Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Again, everyone, let me emphasize that mankind was entirely violent, he says. But even in God's wrath, there was mercy for those who trusted in him. We seem to miss this part. We get so encapsulated with the judgment that we uh, we completely miss the mercy. Think about it: 99.99999999% of that world was evil, and God could have been like, "Well, that 0.000001%? Sorry, <laughs> tough luck, man. I'll bring you unto myself." But He doesn't. He sees this differently. But we see this still as God's very real judgment upon the earth. He said he even regretted making man. That's an intense statement. So, um, and when it says he regretted and these certain things, I do guys want you to understand that the Bible speaks in what we call anthropomorphisms. It uses human language to help us understand God. God doesn't have necessarily regrets the way we do because he knows all things, okay? But he can be grieved. That's part of his nature. We can talk about that at another time. Um, But with all this... We see that Noah's hearing all this from God. He sees that his, uh, all, everyone's going to be destroyed. And he gives, is given instructions, which takes over like 100 years to build this boat. And it's the only boat in all those vessels, by the way, that can actually float. That's cool. But anyway. So the faith of Noah. Let's talk about the faith of Noah. The thing is, what we forget about when it comes to Noah here, is his faith wasn't just, I'm obeying God. The Bible says at this point it had never rained, but like basically a dew kept coming upon the earth. So to hear that I'm going to bring a flood and there's going to be water falling from the sky was probably a little weird. Literally never seen this happen before. Yet he did all that God commanded him. So the question is, let me ask you this, what is biblical faith? We use the word faith a lot, but what does it mean? Well, you know, somebody might, a biblical person might go, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. You start quoting scripture to me. That's good. I like that. Uh, But the thing is, we sometimes forget that biblical faith is so much more than just blind faith. We use this term way too much. Oh, just blind faith, man. I just believe in God. Why? Because I believe. Okay? Back off. (laughs) But the thing is, is biblical faith is so much more than head knowledge as well. A pastor once told me that people will miss heaven by 12 inches. They understand God, but he, he doesn't really reside in their heart. So let me, let me answer the question. What is biblical faith? It is to trust with good reason. To trust with good reason. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, it's because you have good reason to believe it. And if you don't have good reason to believe it, then what are you trusting in? See? For a lot of you, okay, let me ask you this. How many of you inspected, every pastor uses this, I'm going not breaking the cliche today. How many of you checked and inspected your chair before you sat down today? <laughs> That'd be a little weird if I'm like looking back there and I see somebody like You know, like yeah, we don't do that. <laughs> we, instead we just plop. Hopefully it holds. <laughs> if you've got that quarantine weight, it might not. Anyway, but what happens when you trust something with good reason? You act out on it. You look at the chair, you go, I can trust with good reason that chair is going to hold me up. Trust it with good reason. Uh, what about if your parent is upset and they make a threat to you? You're going to obey. Why? Because you have good reason to have faith at the fact that they're going to do something about it. Um, or a law, breaking the law. you It keeps you in line. Why? Because you have good reason to believe that if you break the law, something bad's going to happen to you. So trust Faith is trust with good reason. And this is what James is getting at here. And I want you guys to understand this as we're going forward to talk about this flood story. Because we could talk about the judgment and the flood and and all that. But really, you need to understand that faith is trust with good reason and that faith results in good works. Notice this. James 2.18 through 20 says this. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And James responds with, well, show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You know what he's saying? To understand with your mind isn't enough. It has faith, real faith. I will show you my faith by my works because I'm going to act out on what I believe and what I trust. So, They are linked. Those who have faith bear fruit. You will know them by their fruits, right? So these things go hand in hand. This is why Noah did all that God commanded him. But yet it is attributed to his faith, isn't it? His faith. Hebrews 11.7 says this about Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So he did all that had commanded him, but it was really his faith that saved him. So, and notice how it says also with reverent fear. God is holy and perfect, guys. If he doesn't bring, some, if there's not a bit of you that there's like this, a, an awestruck fear of his judgment, as far as your first motivator to understand God, there's probably something wrong there, right? Again, he's a benevolent father. He's going to welcome you and love you, but he's also going to discipline you. That's why we have this, this whole idea of faith and works and how they're connected. That's why I choose to command him. I love him because he first loved us, right? And therefore, I'm going to act out on it. But also, the Bible does say, Fear the Lord. because of this very thing we're talking about today. So faith results in, so so we have faith results in works. But really what it's getting at is that faith results in salvation. And that's what we just talked about in Hebrews 11. And then also, we're going to get into that in Genesis 7 here in a second. So there is a weird belief that in the Old Testament of your Bible, that people were justified by doing. They're justified by the law. There were, how many of you guys have heard that? Probably all of you. The Old Testament, there's this idea of that. But we see in Hebrews 11 that he was saved by his faith. Same with Abraham. So if you believe that God can forgive sins, past, present, and future, right, when you accept him, you can also believe that God's sacrifice applies to the beginning of time before it even took place. God is outside of time, space, and matter. The, the death of Jesus Christ is not limited to time. Which is why salvation has always been through faith in God. It has always been through faith, not by the works of the law. That's what Jesus was constantly yelling at the Pharisees and other people about, right? The law was merely a schoolmaster. So we need a faith like Noah today. When the world is going to sin and destruction, we stand in the gap, say, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to trust in him, and I'm going to trust that if I walk in his precepts, that he will take care of me. We need a faith that is willing to forsake all of our primal instincts, our desires to fit in, our willingness to, and we need to be willing to go against the grain, to walk in trust and obedience to the Father. That's what we need. That's why, now notice this, Genesis 7-1 says this, then the Lord said to Noah, go into your ark and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. He was walking in faith and now he was able to walk on the ark. That's cool. God's bringing just judgment on everyone, and he sends them into the ark. And that's, of course, when we see that the flood arises, and that God strikes the earth with death and judgment. So let's read the entire, I want us to read through this passage, just chunks of it, because I think it's important that we let God's word speak, not just me speak. And if nothing else, God's word is probably better for you to listen to than me anyway, right? So, Genesis chapter 7, let's just start in verse 4. I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the earth. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Have you ever thought about the pain that this caused God, by the way? To look at his, that he used to, remember in the creation? He created and he said, and behold, it was good. And now it's so evil, he has to wipe it out. It's actually terribly depressing when you really think about it. Now, let's skip ahead to verse 10. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were, heavens were opened. Notice how the flood did not just come from rain. It burst forth from the ground. So it exploded from up and it exploded from down. It was coming from everywhere. There's no escape. Read ahead to verse 11. And the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They He didn't even close the door. God did. The Lord shut him in. He brings in his family. Have you noticed how the Bible sometimes, do you ever think sometimes it's redundant? Like you're reading through like, yes, we get it. Ham, Japheth, his wife, their wife, their kinds, those kinds. That, okay, why do you repeat this six times in this passage? You ever understand, you think that's because God's trying to reiterate the fact that I saved this, I saved them, I saved them, I saved them. These people were not forgotten. When all my judgment was outpoured, I did not forget these people. That's important to understand here. And they did all that God commanded them, and God shut them in. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he shuts us in unto himself. So that way, when judgment's brought upon the earth, we are separate from it. Does that make sense? In a sense, he's our spiritual ark. Now let's read into verse 17. I know, we're doing a lot of reading, but I think it's important to just just let this explain itself. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and rose it high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all the, fresh, all the, fresh, all the flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on that dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the earth. Man and animals and creeping things and the earth left in the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Can you imagine living on a boat that long? with a bunch of smelly animals. Look, I don't know if we have any farmers in here, but you're probably like, that's my day every day. <laughs> but they lived on that for so long, and notice this, hell it said the waters picked up the ark and separated it from the judgment. This becomes important because I was thinking about where I was going to go with the sermon, guys. I'll be honest, I was conflicted. I was thinking about judgment as a, a powerful motivator. But you know what? I gave a doom and gloom sermon a while ago on the, on the fall, and I don't want to always go to doom and gloom, okay? I don't want you guys to know me as the guy who just, well, he's a sour grape. So what this comes down to is I want to talk about this. The first baptism. Plot twist, and I like this. more I thought about it, the more I did like it. So let's talk about this. Seven days they wet, waited, and water came and came and came. Can you imagine what that was like for Noah? He worked 100 years on this ark. Now he's finally seen it come to fruition. His, I mean, do you think there weren't doubts after 100 years of working on it? Is this worth it? Is anything really going to happen? We can imagine what it was like for Noah to spend so long building an ark, no one repenting or changing. Then the water came, watching outside the ark as the entire world you knew starts passing away and destroying in front of you. Perhaps the people who he was around were running to him, begging, pounding on the door that God had shut, saying, let us in, let us in, let us in. Help us. I'm sorry. You can almost imagine that, right? But instead, we understand the fact that many people are not sorry until it's too late. Right? And that's what's going to happen to many people at the final judgment. Many people are going to beg for mercy when the judgment's already been cast. So, we need to understand the power of the judgment, where it was putting him, and how this separates itself. So, in the book of Peter, Peter says, he refers to Noah's flood. And then he says, in baptism, which corresponds to this, not by removal of dirt from the body. And he's talking about, why? Because Noah's flood was a dry baptism, wasn't it? Who got dunked wasn't Noah. Noah was saved by the water, right, from the water. He wasn't dumped in the water. So here's the thing. Baptism has always been a symbol, and people miss this. Baptism has always been a symbol of cleansing away that which is evil and unclean, letting it die and resurfacing, cleaned and anew. So he covers the entire water, the entire world with water. Or stay with me here. He destroys it. He goes. I'm going to let all the evil and that which is unclean. I'm going to let it die, and I'm going to resurface a new creation, beautiful and new, from the chaos and the depths. I am bringing forth a new world. It's pretty cool. This calls us back to the gener- uh, to the Genesis account a little bit. Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Remember when we talked about this in the Kalam? God created order from chaos. And meanwhile here we see chaos had taken over the world, God wipes out the world with water. But instead of an entire new creation coming from the waters, as we see in Genesis 1, we see God spare a portion of his creation. Couldn't God have just been like, you know what, reset button, boom, wiped out, done, dead, take my silly putty earth and throw it over here. I'm going to start something totally new. This was this was a mistake. Oh, or he could have been like, I decree that this is done. I'm, done. I'm over it. But instead, he spares a portion of his creation because in the end, God, even in his judgment, always has mercy. And it's such a cool thing when you realize, I have been a filthy, wretched sinner, and even when I'm under God's wrath, he gives me the mercy of Jesus Christ, which we celebrated last week. It's a cool and powerful thing. He could have just wiped everyone out, created order from chaos again, but instead he inclined to show mercy. And the more you look at this event, the more you see the parallel that the creation account and the foreshadowing of Jesus' ministry. How so? So, because the flood foreshadows to the baptism of the Spirit. Let me explain this to you. When John was baptizing people, what what happened? Okay, the Pharisees came to him and said, in whose name do you baptize? He goes, I baptize with water, but the one who follows me baptizes with the Spirit, right? He baptizes us with Spirit. John 7, 38-39 says this about the Spirit. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So after all, guys, God baptized the earth with water to bring something new from that which is old. Letting the old flesh die, you could say, and the new flesh live. And we know that the Jews, they did baptism. They called it mikvah. So God baptizes the earth with water. Israel baptized with water. But now God baptizes with spirit to bring forth a new creation from the old creation. How cool is that? Instead of just destruction, he always pulls, and he noticed how he compared the water to the spirit. The water, if you read through the scriptures, you'll notice that water oftentimes represents the spirit of God so what's the point of all that? A little baptism tangent. Because the flood calls forth a new creation, and the flood calls our sin to die that we might live. And that is exactly what the baptism of the Spirit is. When you accept Jesus Christ, you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and that baptism from within calls your sin to die that you might live. That's what the judgment of God does. The judgment of God puts us under his wrath, and we understand where we have messed up. But when we step forth in faith and obedience and do that which God commanded us and put our trust in him for with good reason, as the word faith says, it now says that we are stepping forth into the new creation. And then we get to rejoice with God for all eternity in that. We oftentimes forget in the Genesis account here that something old must die for something new to be born. And usually that which is, must die is that which is evil and that which is bad and sinful. We need to put it behind us, putting, forth those, putting behind those things which were before and focusing on that which is ahead of us. We often must destroy in order to create. And is that not what God had to do? Mankind is free will. Mankind is going to keep doing what they want to do. So God went, I have to destroy in order to create something new. So before you sit there and shake your fists at God for being too evil, too rough, too harsh, too rebel, too too malicious to mankind, understand that. Sometimes you have to destroy in order to create, and sometimes evil actions, by the way, deserve judgment. He destroyed the earth with water for its sin, and one day he will destroy sin with fire. We hear that about the hell, don't we? That's what hell is. I punish sin with water, and in the future, I'm going to destroy it with fire. And that is our destiny if we do not put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If we don't put our faith in him, we've got nothing. If we don't put our faith in him, we are putting ourselves under that judgment. And I don't want you under God's judgment, and you shouldn't want to be under God's judgment, and God doesn't want you you under his judgment either, believe it or not. It's like a parent. Parents don't thrive on punishing their children. They actually usually hate it. But they have to do it. Why? Because they're going, I can't let bad things slide. Because if I do, it just gets worse. So I have to bring you under my judgment. Why? Because I actually do love you. But in the end, if you reject me, I have to reject you. And that's what we saw with the earth here. They rejected him first. And think about that 100 years of building the ark. That was 100 years of being able to repent. And no one did. And we see that God allows it, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, we saw we saw that whole thing with Lot. Or think about this: What about Nineveh? Nineveh was spared, but God didn't spare the earth here because they didn't repent. And this is why the focus of that ser- the sermon today is: Sin always results in the destruction of the world, either the world entirely, locally, or internally. Your sin causes destruction. Do not let sin rule over you. Trust in God. Only through his spirit can you overcome your sin anyway and rest in his glorious deed. We celebrated last week when he died on the cross. So let me give you some homework. Take a spiritual inventory. Have you not been taking your sin seriously? We talk about the age of grace all the time. That's awesome. We don't deserve grace, but he gives it to us anyway. But we still need to take our sin seriously because our sin hurts other people, and it hurts ourselves, and it grieves the heart of God. And then also, do you have trusting faith in Jesus Christ? Do you have you put your faith in God, where it belongs? He sent a Son to die for you, to, you know, to, to pay a ransom for your sin, and all he asks that you trust in His work? That's it. Man, that talk about a a cheap price on our end costs him everything. So have you put your faith and trust in him? God destroyed the world because of sin. Take it seriously and understand that if you are living in sin without your faith and trust in him, you are under that wrath and judgment. And he won't destroy you with water, but he'll destroy you with fire in the end. I'm just saying what the Bible says, guys. I'm not trying to be doom and gloom, but it is what it is. But you can be saved from that by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that is the powerful story of the gospel. Now, I know this was doom and gloom a little bit. Whatever. I think you guys are getting used to that from me. (laughs) But I will say this. Next week, we're going to talk about something really awesome, which is God's amazing grace and his promises. We're going to talk about the first covenant next week. And that is not supposed to happen. What's happening? Problem solved. (laughs) The Toshiba is under conviction of its sin. That's what that is. (laughs) Don't shoot. (laughs) What a weird day. All right. But really, guys, next week we're going to talk about the amazing promises of God, and I think you'll come walk uplifted away from that sermon. If today brought you under conviction, next week will bring you hope, okay? Let's put it to you that way. So with that being said, I am going to call Vicki up here to give some announcements and then close us in prayer. Thank you all.